Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. You had the sea coming and the river coming. Chef Jose Andres went to the devastated island a few days after the storm to see how he could help. Ah, muy bien. Gracias. He began doing what he does best. Boom. He found a kitchen, bought some ingredients, and began to cook. It's a good Thanksgiving story because that first day, Andres and his small team made about a thousand meals. Since then, he's recruited an army of chefs and volunteers, and together they've served more than three million meals to the hungry people of Puerto Rico. This is a hospital during the siege of Aleppo. From the looks of it, maybe an exhausted father, a distraught mother, and a child at left curled up on a gurney. That was an airstrike. This hospital was hit 14 times in six months. You work with the understanding that you might find yourself dead or or crippled or dismembered on the floor next to the people you're trying to save. The Isle of Egg is an ungroomed masterpiece of nature too wild to tame, a craggy speck of incredible beauty. Well, the people on Egg, I have to say, are more evolved. Charlie Galley, the taxi driver and amateur philosopher, says most people here have done the whole life on the mainland thing and rejected it. You know everybody on the island? I know them and their shoe sizes, and uh, like I say, there's no secrets on an island, so... So what are they talking about this week? Uh, Mainly you. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. We first met Chef Jose Andres seven years ago in the wildly popular restaurant he'd opened in Beverly Hills. 
Andres was born in Spain, but America is where he became famous for his avant-garde approach to cooking. He has nearly 30 restaurants here now, but he's barely set foot in any of them in the past two months, not since Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico. Andres went to the devastated island a few days after the storm to see how he could help. He's not a disaster relief expert, so he began doing what he does best. He found a kitchen, bought some ingredients, and began to cook. It's a good Thanksgiving story because that first day, Andres and his small team made about a thousand meals. Since then, he's recruited an army of chefs and volunteers, and together they've served more than three million meals to the hungry people of Puerto Rico. Jose Andres is always on the move. In the kitchen, which has become his base of operations in San Juan, he's a culinary commander rallying his troops. Preparing meals for so many people is a massive undertaking, requiring trained chefs, thousands of volunteers, assembly lines of sandwiches, 900 on this table alone. Good ham, good cheese, a lot of mayo. There's a lot of mayonnaise here. It's all the more remarkable because none of this was set up before Jose Andres got to Puerto Rico two months ago. I arrived Monday right after the hurricane, and I asked, who is in charge of feeding the people of Puerto Rico? And they told me, um, everybody, everybody's in charge. You know, when you have to feed an entire island, you need to have one, one person and one organization responsible. There has to be a plan has to be a plan and somebody has to be responsible for achieving that plan. Andres came up with his own plan to feed as many of the islands, nearly three and a half million people, as possible. He started with $10,000 of his own money in cash and pockets full of credit cards. And how do you arrive at a place, you know, you don't know where the food is, you don't know where access to water is. How did you get off the ground here? So for me, it was not difficult. The first thing I do, you're a chef. You go and you try to find a kitchen. Everybody was saying, it's no food, it's no food. Well, that was not true. The big food distribution companies had food because they had fuel, they had diesel. They kept the refrigerators and the freezers working. There was food here. Plenty of food. What was the problem? The problem was the urgency of now. Uh, it's a very simple thing when you're a cook. When you're hungry, you gather the food. You gather your helpers, you begin cooking, and then you start feeding people. He joined up with a local chef named Jose Enrique and other volunteers, cooking enormous pans of paella and stews in a parking lot in San Juan. It wasn't long before they were making more than 100,000 meals a day. How did you scale it up that quickly? Well, uh, you know one thing, when these moments happen, we have a tendency to think, oh, we have to feed 3 million people. Almost the idea is impossible. Seems overwhelming. It's totally overwhelming. But all of a sudden, imagine you began breaking this. We're going to be doing now 25,000 meals. And when you do it well for two days, you increase it to 50,000. And when you do it well, you increase it to 100,000. And all of a sudden, you scale up in a way that is simple. It's a big pan. That's uh, chicken, chickpeas. We tried to put a good amount of proteins. Rice, every Puerto Rican, I love rice. Ingredients are often improvised. They cook whatever they can buy. 
techniques are improvised as well. Jennifer Herrera says a prayer for Puerto Rico as she pours oil into each pan of rice. Que Dios bendiga Puerto Rico. Que Dios bendiga Puerto Rico. The time it takes her to say God bless Puerto Rico is the exact amount of oil she says she needs. How many blessings do you give Puerto Rico every day? Thousands of blessings. With the help of private donations and money from the federal government, Jose Andres's nonprofit organization, Rural Central Kitchen, has prepared more hot meals than any of the other bigger, more experienced disaster relief organizations here, like the Salvation Army and the Red Cross. Most agencies, if they're giving out food, they're giving out MREs or snacks or not hot meals. Americans should be receiving one plate a day of hot food. That's not too much to ask in America. An MRE is very expensive for the American taxpayer. A hot meal is more affordable, it's cheaper, it's what people really need, it's what people really want. They feel all of a sudden that you are caring for them, that America is caring for them. You're not just giving calories, you're giving attention to, to people. The calories are obvious, but this is a message of hope. This is a message we care. And be patient. Things eventually will get better. That message of hope is one Andres has been preaching for weeks on social media. So, great, we got the refrigerator and fresh produce. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Documenting his efforts to expand operations around the entire island. At the height of the emergency, he had 18 kitchens going at once. And used trucks, cars, and anyone he could find to deliver meals. All of a sudden, I have Homeland Security helping us deliver sandwiches and water in the most difficult areas of uh, the island. I had quotes from the U.S. Coast Guard helping us, volunteering. We were having uh, so many different men and women coming from, from the federal government helping us. There are still plenty of places that need the help. In this community, an hour south of San Juan, there's no electricity. This is the first hot meal this family has eaten in more than two weeks. Andres's dedication has inspired others in Puerto Rico to set up kitchens of their own. In a church perched in the mountains of Naguabo, Pastor Eliomar Santana and his parishioners cook hot meals for neighboring communities with the rice, beans, and sausages Andres has provided them. We have people here with no water, no, no lights. They, they lost everything in their house, and they have stopped thinking on that for helping others. So even though some of your parishioners need help, they're still volunteering here? Yeah, they're still volunteering. They're still trying to help other people? They're still trying to help other people. Before delivering the food to a nearby housing project, Pastor Santana thanks God and then Jose Andres. In the church, when you were praying, you thanked God first, and second you thanked Jose Andres. Yes, that's very important. But I have to say, always say, God first, then Jose. <laughs> well, Jose's in good company. Andres's presence has not been without controversy. He's been critical of the federal government's response to the hurricane, and after attending meetings with FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, he called their headquarters in San Juan the most inefficient place on earth. Was that the frustration that it was just bureaucratic, that there were a lot of meetings and you felt like things weren't getting done? We were already 
feeding 100,000 people a day, and I needed their help to make sure we had money to keep buying the food, to keep feeding these never-ending lists of people in need. And there is where, call it red tape, nothing was happening. FEMA did award Andres' rural central kitchen two short-term contracts worth $11.5 million to provide 1.8 million meals. But the agency refused to grant them a third, longer-term contract. Andres thinks the overall response to disaster relief needs to change. The people of the federal government are great people. But then it's red tape that sometimes doesn't allow that same people to be successful. I didn't put the name emergency on FEMA. I didn't. But somebody's going to have to tell me the meaning of emergency. To me, when we're talking about food, and this is the little thing I know, is that emergency in food means one thing. People are hungry. And when you're hungry, it's today. FEMA says, look, to negotiate a big contract, we hit, there's a bidding process. You have to have three different companies bidding on it, that there's federal government regulations. You say that gets in the way of... Americans in Puerto Rico were hungry, and we were not delivering food quick enough. And what we did is we didn't plan, we didn't meet. We began cooking, and we began delivering food to the people in need in Puerto Rico. And what we need to make sure is that next time we are not negotiating contracts, that next time the federal government is ready to do what they are supposed to do. Next time something like this happens, maybe an earthquake, maybe another hurricane, or maybe a terrorist attack, we need to make sure we are ready because the people of America don't deserve anything less. Jose Andres' passion for disaster relief is a far cry from what excited him when we first met him in his restaurant in Beverly Hills in 2010. That's, liquid nitrogen. That's liquid nitrogen. Back then, he was leading a kind of culinary revolution, pioneering innovations in molecular gastronomy, marrying science with food in surprising and playful ways. Are you ready for this? Because I believe your life is going to change forever. <laughs> I mean it. This is going to change my life? Uh, maybe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know why I keep doing stories about food, because I don't really eat much and never really think much about food, but it's so interesting to me how, f for you, food is at the center of everything. Anderson, food touches everything. Food is in our DNA. Food touches the economy. Food is science. Food is romanticism. Food is health. Food has many of the opportunities to have a better tomorrow. That philosophy is at the heart of Andres' humanitarian efforts around the globe. He founded World Central Kitchen after the earthquake in Haiti earthquake? in 2010. And, you know, I've been here more than 25 times to Haiti. This past June, months before Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, we met up with Andres in Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince. He said we should be having here the freshest fish every day. He supports an orphanage here and has established a job training program for local chefs. He's also spearheading an effort to reduce the widespread use of charcoal in cooking. Long-term exposure to smoke from cooking indoors on fires kills an estimated 4 million people worldwide every year, most of them women and children. Andres has provided cleaner-burning propane gas stoves to more than 100 schools in Haiti, like this one in Port-au-Prince. I mean, focusing on stoves, on the idea of clean-cooked stoves, is not something that 
a lot of people think about. I am a cook. I feed the few, but I've always been super interested in feeding the many. And when I've seen some of these women doing the change from the charcoal to the gas, everything changes around them. When we see this woman cooking in the street with charcoal and we eat the plate of food, we should all be asking ourselves how that plate of food can really become an agent of change. An agent of change. A true agent of change, one plate at a time. Jose Andres spent Thanksgiving in Puerto Rico, continuing to feed people one plate at a time. This has been his biggest undertaking thus far. Every time it's a rainbow, you know things are going to get better. He's scaling back now as the need for emergency food relief here lessens, but he's already thinking about how he can do it better the next time disaster strikes. Ah, muy bien. Gracias. Bashar al-Assad destroyed Syria in order to remain its president. The dictator, son of a dictator, has committed every war crime on the books, bombing civilians, gassing neighborhoods, torturing prisoners. An estimated 400,000 people have been killed in the civil war and 11 million forced from their homes. Last December, with his allies Russia and Iran, Assad occupied the ruins of Aleppo, Syria's largest city. Various rebel groups continue to fight, and Assad means to break them with another war crime, the destruction of hospitals. What you're about to see is difficult to watch, but it's worth it, because standing in Assad's way are courageous doctors, many of them American volunteers, risking their lives to heal the wounds of war. This is a hospital during the siege of Aleppo. From the looks of it, maybe an exhausted father, a distraught mother, and a child at left curled up on a gurney. That was an airstrike. This hospital was hit 14 times in six months. This is Aleppo again, last year. Al Jazeera reporter Amro Halabi was covering the aftermath of a chemical attack. Once the ER filled up, the hospital was hit. The nursery was evacuated. Then the camera found the neonatal ICU. Targeting hospitals is the atrocity that started the Geneva Conventions 153 years ago and led to the creation of the Red Cross. It is the original war crime. Since 2011, there have been more than 450 attacks on Syrian hospitals. Emergency medicine has been driven underground. Every neighborhood airstrike delivers too many patients with too little time. Doctors improvise with scavenged drugs and salvaged equipment. So many doctors have been killed or have fled. 
that veterinarians and dentists are pressed to do surgery. You work with the understanding that you might find yourself dead or, or crippled or dismembered on the floor next to the people you're trying to save. Dr. Samer Attar is a leading orthopedic surgeon from Chicago who volunteers in Syria's makeshift hospitals. The bombs would land so close, they'd, they'd knock you off your feet, and at times they would directly hit the hospital. But uh, all I did was look around and, and, and follow everyone else's lead because they're like, they're like rocks. They don't lose their cool. They don't lose their composure. They just, they just keep working. Dr. Attar enlisted in the Syrian-American Medical Society, so far, it's which began in the 1990s as a professional association. But since the revolution, these American doctors have raised nearly $100 million in aid and sent more than 100 members into rebel-held Syria, including Aleppo, where Dr. Attar worked. We'd find ourselves doing surgeries, sometimes without anesthesia, on people lying on gurneys uh, in the hallway because you're just so overstretched. Say hi, everybody. These are Dr. Attar's pictures of Aleppo. I remember another child that was brought in. She couldn't have been more than five. Um, her whole body was pockmarked with shrapnel from her chest to her belly. And one of the surgeons in Aleppo, a Syrian surgeon, heroically rushed her to the operating room and and opened up her belly and stopped the bleeding in her liver. But she had lost so much blood. We, we can't, you can't give all of your blood to save one life if you can save it to give a little bit each to five who you know will make it. And I saw that all the time. Did that little girl make it? That girl? No, she did not. Seeing little bodies wrapped in white shrouds with the cloth still bleeding because the bodies still bleed. They'd be wrapped in white shrouds and just placed outside to be taken to be buried. Six-year-old Mohammed Kamet was destined for a burial shroud until a Syrian surgeon saved his life. Mohammed's house had been hit by a mortar, and he became unforgettable to Samaritar. I remember him because um, he lost his mother and um, his siblings and uh, both of his legs. The day before I left Aleppo, he asked me to bring back robotic legs, prosthetic legs, if I ever returned. Um, and if only were that, that simple, he thought that I could deliver them like a pair of gym shoes and that everything would be back to normal. He'd go back to running around and, and playing soccer. It's the worst humanitarian crisis in our lifetimes and because those are our own people. Basil Termanini is vice president of the Syrian American Medical Society. He's a gastroenterologist in Steubenville, Ohio. He told us the society donated 120 ambulances, pays the salaries of nearly 2,000 Syrian staff, equips 135 medical facilities, and is building more. There have been more than 500 attacks on healthcare facilities, and we had more than 800 casualties from the staff. Uh, so we're trying to move all those facilities underground. Did you say 800 medical professionals have been killed in attacks on hospitals? Yes, more than 800. I think now it's the latest, it's 850. Uh, there are attacks on hospitals. There are people are detained, tortured to death. Um, there are shelling also, mostly airstrikes and barrel bombs. This is the number one uh, killer for the health staff. Who are some of the men and women who work with you inside Syria? Those are our heroes. They know they're risking their lives every day, risking their family's life. But they know if they migrate and go out, 
nobody is willing to provide those services. So then we try to support them. Whatever they need, we try to fulfill. What they need is to know that they are not alone. How many trips in does this make for you? This is number four. We traveled into Syria with Dr. Attar. The road to Aleppo was in the hands of an Islamist rebel group known as Harar al-Sham. Our route was through Idlib, the last whole province still at war. We found a hospital hit by an airstrike, but somehow still running. On the darkened but functioning side of the hospital... How are you? Samar Attar spotted Abdurham Ghanem. They had worked in Aleppo before its fall last December. It was a massacre. Yes. A massacre. So much bodies, so much injuries. We did our best. Which is all you can do. Yes. It wasn't enough, but uh, what we could do. Aleppo's underground hospitals were hard to destroy, so Assad tried to root them out by doubling down on his war crimes. We found two witnesses to this, Dr. Farida, who performs cesareans on wounded women, and her husband, Dr. Abdul Halak, an eye surgeon. They couldn't destroy this building, so they used a chemical weapon uh, in the last two days of the siege. We noticed uh, the smell of chlorine, and uh, we rushed all of the staff, all the patients, to the inner room in that uh, basement. And during this uh, time, many uh, children came to our hospital, and uh, we had just uh, one remaining bottle of oxygen. Uh, so we had to uh, transfer the mask between the children one uh, small amount of oxygen for each other. No one died in the chlorine attack, but the gas shut down the hospital for a time. Now, more sophisticated underground hospitals are being built by the Syrian American Medical Society. In the countryside, they're excavating a cave to replace a regional hospital that serves more than 200,000 people. The operating rooms are where? The main two. These two? Yeah. The cave was already here. The limestone had eroded away over thousands of years. Then the engineers came in, they cleared out the cave, and they lowered this floor about six feet. When the hospital's finished, it will have three operating rooms, 12 inpatient beds, and a state-of-the-art emergency room. This is much bigger than the basement I worked in in Aleppo. The Syrian American Medical Society has spent more than three and a half million dollars on cave hospitals. The money's come from private donations and the United Nations. Fragments of the bomb. Bomb fragments, the little white spots. For every life saved, he's going to need several more surgeries. There is a lifetime of recovery. So the Syrian-American Medical Society supports this hospital on the Syrian border inside Turkey. It is a safe place for long-term healing. A lot of these patients had very severe injuries, such as, you know, severe, very extensive burns. Tamer Ghanem is a surgeon from Detroit who re-sculpts the disfigured. He volunteers when he can get away, 
about a week at a time. One of the most important things is the face, is how people identify themselves. But there are also functional aspects uh, to that, uh, things like being able to open your mouth so you can get a spoon inside your mouth so you can feed yourself. What can you do for these people? It's very rare that one surgery would fix everything. Some of the surgeries I cannot do here just because of limitation of the equipment. I mean, some of these injuries are so horrific that really you're not able to rebuild uh, uh, face back again with, with the tissues that that patient has. It must be frustrating for you to see these patients in so desperate a need and you not being able to help them. Yes, it's very hard. Absolutely. Especially the children. Mm -hmm. Especially I have my own children and it's very difficult to see children, uh, you know, with those injuries and their parents and how that affects them. One of those injured children in the Turkish hospital was Mohammed Kement, the same boy from Aleppo who asked American doctor Samir Attar for those robotic legs three years ago. This was the first time they had seen each other since then. Mohammed's prosthetics were supplied by a New Hampshire-based charity called New Day Syria. We asked Mohammed what he wants to be, but we could have guessed. He wants to be an orthopedic surgeon. I'll bet you'd be a very good doctor. Thank you. You understand patients really well. Thank you. The Syrian American Medical Society says that over six years of war, it has delivered 100,000 babies and supported almost 400,000 surgeries. What's his name? Shosmek. No. Why risk your life for this? Well, the Syrian nurses and the doctors, the, the rescue workers that I met um, told me that they would rather risk their lives dying in Syria, trying to save lives, than, than grow old comfortably from a distance, watching the world fall apart. He's going to be okay. And um, I thought 20 years from now, I, I didn't want to look back and say that uh, I wasn't a part of that. The war against the hospitals is designed to break the will of the rebellion. But as long as some will fight for mercy, there is reason for all to hope. Every now and then, just for the fun of it, we decide to go off to some obscure place that you've never heard of and are not likely to visit. Tonight, we're taking you to Egg, or the People's Republic of Egg, as it's jokingly referred to in Scotland, a country where half the privately held land is owned by fewer than 500 people. A lot of it is tied up in huge estates owned by lairds, who often run them as fiefdoms. Twenty years ago, after two centuries of servility, the people of Egg drove away their laird and seized control of their own destiny, establishing the first community-owned estate in Scotland's history. We wanted to see what they've made of it. Just three miles wide, six miles long, and ten miles off the Scottish coast, Egg is part of the Inner Hebrides, surrounded by the Isles of Rum, Muck, and Skye at the edge of the North Atlantic. It's an ungroomed masterpiece of nature, too wild to tame. A craggy isle of incredible beauty, populated mostly by sheep and the dogs that keep track of them. The people do their best to stay clear while taking everything in. So what's your average day like? Some people would say very lazy. I like to think I just uh, make the hard work look easy. 
All depends on your outlook. Charlie Galley is the taxi driver on Egg and the only source of public transportation up and down the island's furrowed main artery. It's a niche he claimed for himself when he arrived from the mainland with his wife in this aging Volvo four years ago. Plenty of time to get the feel of the place. You know everybody on the island? I know them and their shoe sizes, and uh, like I say, there's no secrets on an island, so... So what are they talking about this week? Uh, mainly you. It's not like they don't get visitors. 12,000 tourists came here last year, most of them to spend only a few hours. There are very few places to stay. We were going to be here for days, asking questions about Egg's quirky history. And everyone directed us to Maggie Fife, the island's secretary, who landed here 41 years ago after touring Afghanistan in a camper. I never imagined that I would spend the rest of my life here. Does that mean you like it? Uh, I think so, yeah. <laughs> It was 1976, just after the entire island had been purchased by a wealthy English toff named Keith Schellenberg, who became the seventh Laird of Egg. Welcome to Egg. Under Scotland's feudal landlord system, he had absolute power over virtually every aspect of his estate. What kind of impact did he have on people's lives? He had that control over everything and people, jobs, houses, and he wouldn't give anybody a lease on anything. By all accounts, Schellenberg used the island as his personal playground, lavishly entertaining guests and driving about in a 1927 Rolls-Royce while most of his tenants lived in poverty without electricity. Was there a rebellion? Eventually, yeah. <laughs> it started with a slow burn that burst into flames one night in 1994 when Schellenberg's beloved Rolls-Royce met a fiery end burnt to a crisp like a slice of bacon under circumstances still unexplained. A mysterious fire, spontaneous combustion, who knows? So did you ever figure out what happened to the Rolls-Royce? No. Headline writers all over Britain couldn't believe their luck. There was scrambled egg, burnt rolls, and egg comes to the boil. It went on for a year until Schellenberg gave up expressing his disdain for the islanders in this BBC interview. I think that my ultimate failure with Egg is that I can't be bothered to try and get on with them anymore. His final act was to sell the island to a wacky German who called himself Maruma and claimed to be an artist of note and a professor. He turned out to be neither. Up to his beret and debt, Maruma stopped paying people's wages and within two years, creditors put Egg up for auction. Maggie Fife and others thought, why not buy the island for ourselves? By the time we got to Maruma, and two years of somebody that was living in Stuttgart and had only visited for four days, it had convinced everybody that we wouldn't have to do very much to do better than what he'd done, which was nothing. <laughs> no one in Scotland had ever tried a community buyout before. Certainly not 64 residents on a depressed, undeveloped island with no cash or credit. But lots of people were familiar with their story and fancied the idea of we folk taking on the big guys. In 1997, a public fundraising campaign brought in $2.5 million to close the deal. The funds came from 10,000 individual contributors and one huge check from an unknown woman. The bulk of the money came from... Um mystery benefactor. A mystery benefactor? Sounds like Dickens. 
It's a pretty crazy story, really. You don't know who she is? The only string attached was that she remained anonymous. She ever been to the island? Not as far as I know. Do you know why she did it? I think she's given money to a lot of what she regards as good causes. And we were lucky enough to be one of them. <laughs> that was 20 years ago. The Eggers and their friends marked the two decades of self-rule with a big blowout they call a Kaylee. With traditional music, dancing, and drink. We decided to cancel the next day's shoot to allow time for recovery, but 24 hours wasn't enough. What time did you leave the Kaylee? It's about 8 a.m., I think, when we finally left, yeah. How long did it take you to recover? Uh, probably tomorrow. Johnny Jobson first experienced egg in his 20s, working on a fishing boat as a scallop diver. Since then, a lot has changed. One, there is electricity now, which allowed him to move his wife and family here last year and edit a sports journal online from their tiny cottage. It's required some sacrifices, but they love the beauty of the place and its eccentricities. You look at the scenery or you see a pod of dolphins come through and you just remind yourself how lucky you are. You seem to have a lot of characters on this island. Yeah. Were they normal when they came here? Uh, um, yeah, not all of us. <sighs> Dean Wigan turned up in a kayak 14 years ago and he's still here. He's very good at fixing things. Jobs are extremely scarce, so you have to bring one with you or use your wits to invent one. It's one of those places that really gets into your soul, I think. It's quite enchanting. Sarah Bowden runs her uncle's sheep farm on egg. She grew up here, then left to work as a music journalist in London, where she met her future partner, Johnny Lynch, one of Scotland's most popular musicians. She coaxed him to egg. Did you think he was going to come? Not really. <laughs> no, because, yeah, I was living in a caravan at the time and, uh, yeah, it was all quite rustic. <laughs> yeah, you did look a bit shocked. <laughs> and Johnny's, you know, proper suburban city. What? Well, you're not a natural country boy, are you? If you mean I look after my nails, then, then yes, yes, I do. But, uh yeah, I knew from when I, as soon as I got here, I couldn't really see a reason for me to go back and just look at me now. Look at you now. <laughs> see if you can spell it. When it comes to the essentials on egg, there is basically one of everything. One primary school for five students, one grocery shop where a hundred islanders all choose from the same food, and one pub at the tea room down by the wharf where the best beer is local. Stu McCarthy and Gabe McVarish, who are both married to women who grew up on egg, got so tired of drinking the mass-produced stuff from the mainland, they started their own mini microbrewery two years ago. So this is it. Is this legal? It's legal. It's legal. They make eight different brews, including I Am the Egg Man, which is very popular with the tourists. They're just beginning to turn a profit, but say they've saved a lot of money drinking their own beer. Are you the biggest-selling beer on egg? <laughs> Thankfully, yes. Yeah, we can say that. None of these younger people would be here without the island's tiny but unique power grid that runs almost entirely on renewable energy. A combination of wind, hydroelectric, 
and solar, the first time it's ever been accomplished anywhere. That is the biggest and most impressive project that we've done. It changed everything, right? Oh, yeah, it's made life so much easier. It was designed and funded with multiple grants, mostly from the European Union, and engineers from all over the world have come to study it. Like everything else on Egg, it is run and maintained by revolving committees of islanders, the only visible sign of any sort of government. There are no offices, no court system, no police. Is there any crime on the island? There's no crime or anything. Never? Not that I can remember. Nobody's snatched something or borrowed something? Or... They borrow it, and you'll get it usually within the week, you know, returned to you kind of thing. You just don't know where it is at that point in time when, you know, when you're looking for it. But it will turn up again. It can't go anywhere. It's on an island, so, yeah. What happens if somebody gets sick? Well, you basically have to be sick on a Tuesday. A doctor comes from Sky on a Tuesday, uh, spends a day here. Uh, and that's uh, sometimes weather permitting, if it's really rough in the winter time. Egg is dependent on boats for everything. When a ferry comes in with fuel and food, people flock to the wharf to help out. It's not a courtesy, it's a necessity on an island where everyone is more or less scraping by. To survive, they have to rely on each other, look after each other, and put up with each other. The island is too small for feuds or lingering resentments. What's the difference between people who live on the mainland and people who live on egg? Well, the people on egg, I'd have to say, are more evolved. Charlie Galley, the taxi driver and amateur philosopher, says most people here have done the whole life on the mainland thing and rejected it. They're all doing their hamster wheel thing, you know. Hamster wheel? Yeah. You get a mortgage, you get a car, you get a job, you do this, that, and the next thing. And they all get so involved, they forget to look about them and see what's actually going on in life, you know. You should know egg is not always served sunny side up. As the days get shorter, the windy, rainy weather turns to sleet with gusts up to 100 miles an hour. The boats might not get through for a week, so people keep lots of beans and spam in the storeroom. Even the sheepdogs look forlorn. If you accidentally open your mouth when a gust of wind's coming, it involuntarily fills your lungs. You're like... <laughs> <laughs> to live here, you have to be resilient, self-sufficient, and patient. And not just with the sheep. The cows like to go down and lie on the beach, on the sand. And they'll all trail down the road, so you can't argue with a cow, you know. It wants to do what it wants to do, and you've just got to give it plenty of time, you know. There are no grand ambitions here and no discernible interest in development, despite the sea, the cliffs, and the vistas. The owners don't want hotels or a Donald Trump golf course or hundreds of new residents. I think we're looking for one or two at a time. I think that's how, how it works here. Then it works a lot better. And we've got time to get used to new people. <laughs> we would have liked to stay longer in this stress-free, non-conflict zone where everyone seems to be more or less on the same page. But we were out of clean laundry, we had a ferry to catch, and hamster wheels to jump back onto. As for the people of Egg, I don't think they were sad to see us go. <laughs> 50 seasons of 60 minutes. Tonight, from November 2008, when Leslie Stahl renewed her acquaintance with Rex Lewis Clack, whom she'd first met three years earlier. 
Max was born blind and with severe brain damage and with a gift that defines a musical savant. Well, here he is five years later at 13, playing Debussy for audiences around the country. Come join me. In all the years I've known Rex, I never thought he'd be able to sit at the piano with me and play an improvised duet, <laughs> much less enjoy it. Well, oh. <laughs> that was wonderful, Leslie. I'm Steve Croft. We'll be back next week with a special celebration of 50 years of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.